Did anyone else out there have a scrapbooking phase? Mine happened somewhere between the ages of 7 and 10. I loved bugging my mom to get our photos developed at CVS, negotiating with her about which pictures I could keep, shopping for supplies at the craft store, and then putting it all together in an empty photo album. Often, I was so overzealous about the whole process that I would work way too quickly, hate the result, and then beg for a new blank scrapbook. Have I mentioned that I'm a perfectionist? Like me, it would seem that some of the classic American Girl characters went through scrapbooking phases of their own, since a handful of scrapbooks were released bearing their names in the early aughts. On today's episode, my guests and I share our experiences reviewing the scrapbook of one Molly McIntyre, which is entitled Molly's Route 66 Adventure. Molly's Route 66 Adventure was published in 2002 and is chock full of anecdotes and mementos from Molly's family road trip from Illinois to California. On episode 148, you'll hear a lot of general conversation about Molly, our takes on the millennial middle part debate, and our thoughts on whether a trip like the one described in this book would actually be fun. You'll get historical context about everything from decoder games and Hollywood to national parks and Route 66 itself. We take a close look at Molly's interactions with and language about indigenous people. This is quite a journey, and I am so happy that you're along for the ride. I couldn't be more excited to have the hosts of the American Girls podcast on today's episode. Allison is a public historian who once tried to fail an eye exam to get Molly-style glasses. We didn't get to talk about this when we recorded, but Allison, I didn't not do this. Allison is interested in histories of women and work and can always be convinced to take part in a house museum tour. Mary is a historian, pop culture addict, and a total Molly. She will gladly discuss the histories of American Girl, Bibliotherapy, or Mariah Carey's short-lived reality show. You can learn more about the American Girls podcast at americangirlspod.com, and you can listen to it on your podcast player of choice. Follow the show on Instagram at American Girls Podcast and on Twitter at A Girls Pod, and support American Girls Pod on Patreon at patreon.com slash American Girls Podcast. Follow Allison on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Horrocks, and follow Mary on Instagram at Minnie Mahoney and on Twitter at MaryMahoney123. I had the best time with Mary and Allison and would gladly take a road trip with them anytime. If you'd like to get in on this road trip adventure, maybe start by saying hey on social media. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. You might also consider joining the SSR Book Club, in which every month, volunteer leaders facilitate super fun conversations about throwback middle grade and YA lit that we've covered on the podcast previously. In June, the SSRBC is focusing on Ballet Shoes and Christie's Great Idea, aka the first book in the Babysitter's Club series. Join for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or by clicking the link in SSR's Instagram bio. I mentioned that American Girls Podcast is on Patreon a few minutes ago, and SSR is on Patreon too. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's basically a platform that connects independent creators, like me, with fans of the content they create, like you. As an independent podcast, SSR is not backed by a larger organization, and it's quite literally a one-woman show. Thanks to Patreon, fans of the podcast can commit just a few dollars a month to the show in exchange for very cool exclusive rewards, like monthly Patreon parties, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, SSR merch, weekly voice notes, newsletters, and more. In July, I will be launching a quarterly Patreon book club in which we'll read new adult books and discuss them together. I am so excited and I hope you'll join me. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks to all the Patreon sponsors tuning into this episode now. Are you a fan of audiobooks? Do you just love to listen to the books on your TBR? If so, I hope you'll check out Libro FM. Libro FM lets you support independent bookstores with the purchase of every audiobook, which is especially great if you don't have a brick and mortar independent bookstore where you live. With Libro FM, you can support independent booksellers instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same, and they come at no extra cost. If you're a Libro.fm newbie, you can get a discount on your first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted. You'll get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. All right, listeners, time to pack your suitcases and get in the car for our Route 66 adventure with Molly. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. 
What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Okay, listeners, this is a very exciting moment. I have today, Allison and Mary of the American Girls Podcast. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for having us. We're so excited to be here. We're very happy to be here. I shared this with you before I started recording, but I have received a few DMs over the last couple of weeks since I started sharing that I was prepping for this recording that say things along the lines of like, this is the collab that we've all been waiting for. So no pressure or anything, but I think this is going to be a great episode. I also said before we started recording that I feel like I'm with my people and what a way to spend a Wednesday night. But I also have to mention there's a fourth a fourth person, a fourth personality who's involved with this recording. Allison, do you want to introduce our other friend? I would love to. So, you know, it's hard to break the fourth wall for a fourth person, but, you know, we do have a fourth personality here. So my 2021 35th edition Molly is here. She is still in the box. So the Molly we're talking about in this book is out of pocket. This Molly is in her box. I'm just not ready yet. She's not ready. We're both not ready. I don't blame you. I think I don't think I would be able to take her out of the box yet. It's hard. It's hard because I have a, a wonderful Molly who's lived a great 25, 26 years. This Molly is like, I don't know what her vibe is going to be. So I'm keeping her locked up. Well, in a way, it's like the old one is what I guess we're calling a geriatric millennial <laughs> now. Yes. But in the new one, it's like, I don't know if you've seen this, but on Pinterest, you can look up American Girl birthday party like DIY hacks. And one of them is to make what I consider to be a chilling decoration where it's a photo box, but it's to make children look like they are themselves an American Girl doll in a box, not unlike the Molly that Allison just flashed to us. So it's kind of where my head's at. I mean, I'm, I'm scared. I'm very excited to be here. But you know, that's just where I'm at right now. We have some concerns about this new Molly. Is she a Gen Zer? Is she into TikTok? Well, I mean, does she ha- she does have a middle part. So like that is kind of concerning. I refuse, if any Gen Z listeners are listening, I refuse to take on the idea that we shouldn't have middle or that we shouldn't have side parts now. I agree. I'm sorry, but if you're past the age of like 24, this number keeps creeping up every time I say this, <laughs> you should not have a middle part. I'm just going to like, I don't know. I don't want to say something so bold so early in this episode, but I just feel that in my spirit. So the fact that like we're looking at Molly and she has a middle part, I mean, she does have bangs. I don't know if that changes things, but. She's uncut. I mean, so, I mean, that's kind of the biggest difference between her and my beloved Molly. That Molly's had a few haircuts, which is what was predestined for her. I think the whole sort of like bangs, middle parts discourse. It's like that was to distract us from waging class warfare during the pandemic. So I won't go there. But I do think this Molly is actually a boomer at heart or maybe lost generation. People were upset when we maybe mislabeled Molly in some other time, but there's weirdness about her birth date in the books, but she is born in the 1930s. And I want to believe she's an old soul. So I believe that she's right now out somewhere at what's now like a vacation hotspot kind of nostalgia restaurant on what was Route 66 asking to see the manager. That's just what I'm imagining. (laughs) And not wearing a mask and didn't wear a mask during the she's just like, oh, life has continued. (laughs) I'm still not wearing a mask. And I wasn't six, 10 months ago. I have not ever worn a mask because I was born in the 30s and I don't do things like that. No. She actually has a part-time residence at the Villages. So this trip that she actually took in 1946 on Route 66 really opened Molly's eyes. And so she and who we're going to call her special friend actually do live at the Villages. 
I believe that's true. She's over the rainbow, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. During Pride Month. So I think that's, you know, like there's a lot of things coming together here that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into. We couldn't have planned it better. I mean, I, all of these things are coming together at the same time. Really, it was meant to happen this way. It's magical. And I guess I'll introduce the book that we're talking about because it's a little bit different actually than any book that's been covered on the podcast so far. And if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned that this is a format or a book that you have been wanting to cover as well and haven't yet. We're talking about Molly's Route 66 adventure. um, And it was the first book introduced in this like scrapbook sort of series extension. And there have been numerous of these, of course, over the decades that American Girl has been a very special part of our lives. Um, And this one was published in 2002. And I just have to say, first of all, that when it arrived in my home, and I opened it, and I started just like paging through it and looking at it, it filled my heart with endless joy. That's on brand. Yeah, I mean, it's much more of a picture book than anything that we've ever covered on the podcast. It's shorter, it's less text. Thank you for choosing it. Um, Lots of things to look at. It's very interactive. I bought a used copy, so I'm not going to lie. Some of the items were removed from my copy. So I do think that I maybe missed out on parts of the experience because there are these like envelopes throughout it. And I was like gleefully reaching into the envelopes to see what was inside. And it was in vain. And then I started just like running my hand back and forth inside <laughs> the envelopes, like just to make sure as if I was six years old and like just mad that I didn't get the cookie that I was promised after eating dinner. But I will just say this is like a totally different kind of adventure for SSR. And I'm really excited because normally I'm like prepped with pages and pages and pages of notes and like deep textual analysis. And I have some notes, I have some thoughts on like each of the stops that Molly and her family takes on this trip. But I also think that this is just like a little bit of a different vibe. So I guess I mean, I know we've already talked about Molly in terms of like the fourth person who is here with us tonight. But I would love if you for those who maybe aren't familiar with your show or aren't familiar with your personal relationship with Molly, Allison and Mary, if you would talk a little bit about Molly generally, your thoughts on her, your relationship with her, because I also got several DMs from people who are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad they picked a Molly book, like they would pick a Molly book. So again, I think there is a lot of overlap in our listenership. But for those who do not know your connection with Molly, let's provide a little bit of context if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think Molly, were she alive today, if she were on social media, of course, she would be on Facebook. That would be the most age appropriate venue for her. And I think were we to be on Facebook with Molly, we would be labeling our relationship. It's complicated at this point. And, you know, growing up, Alice and I both identified as Molly's. We still do. Uh, The premise of our show is that we reread each American Girl book. Uh, We're rereading the series book by book. So and we're doing it in the chronological order of their settings for the first five originals. So we've just finished that. We're reading Kaya right now. But when we went to read Molly, we truly forgot so much of these books. And it forced us to sit with some complicated feelings about the person with whom we most closely identified. Namely, is she always the best behaved? Um, No. Is she sometimes a sociopath? Perhaps. Allison, do you want to dive in here at this point? I mean, I become a little bit more like Molly with each passing day. I just got these new eyeglasses and I look more like Molly than I perhaps ever have. So Molly was not a cool girl in a conventional sense. But when I first read Molly in 1995, she was the coolest to me. And for both Mary and I, we had grandparents in our lives still at that time who were around for World War II, which is the historical setting for Molly's books. But to varying degrees, what they told us about that time or their experiences from that time, they weren't always forthcoming in my experience, or they shared really wonderful things in Mary's experience. And so to get to have a girl who could invite us into the worlds of 1943 to 1946, we got to kind of see relatable problems. Molly does not deal with veg at supper time. I don't either. Molly has beautiful bangs. I aspire. So I think what was... I think they're great. Thank you. I think they're really great. Me or her? I'm talking about you, you, Molly, too. But especially like the glasses bangs combo right now, it's really working quite well. And it's important to note that you really have what I would call a side sweep. So like just give yourself enough credit there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, we went back and we reread other characters. And we have always said we're both Molly's. 
And to some folks, we were too harsh, right? Or kind of unforgiving about other nine-year-olds we discussed. But we said, you know, we won't hold back on Molly. And there's some harsh times in her books. I would say also in this book where, you know, she has some foibles. She has some moments. There's some awkward encounters with people, we'll say, for now. (laughs) But, you know, for us, she really was a bridge. And we talk about books as mirrors, books as windows, books as connecting points. And, you know, I would give anything to talk to the people in my family who were this age at that time. And Molly is a way for us to do that. So in the fact that other people... I've said I'm the luckiest woman on social media. All my DMs are women holding dolls. So when you click on the blurred image, it's a woman with a doll or a TikTok about women with dolls. So I'm very grateful for that. And Molly did that for us. So, you know, we we do have to respect the woman in the box, so to speak. And that's why she's here. That's why she's here being part of this conversation. That's right. And, you know, I should also say, like, sometimes it goes full circle. Like, (laughs) we're both Molly's growing up, like... I'm a queer woman. So is Molly. Did I realize that at the time about either of us when I was nine years old? No. But, you know, you go on the journey. And I think in this book, there's, you know, there's a real story here about that, which, you know, Allison let me know because she read it before me. But wow, there's a lot in this book. There's a lot. It's a short book, but there's a lot here. Yeah. When I was getting ready for for this, I was like, oh, I'm not even going to put together notes. Like, we're just going to page through it. And then I started going through it and I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to note down like the scrapbook items on each page. And I was like, mm, I'm going to note down the scrapbook items and maybe some memorable quotes. And there's enough. There's certainly plenty to discuss. And I appreciate you sharing more about your Molly perspective. My Molly context, my Molly background is that I did have a Molly doll and I read all of the Molly books. I do think I was more of a Samantha, or at least that's how I identified. I don't really know why. At this point, we have not covered a Samantha book on the podcast. We have done Meet Felicity and Meet Kirsten, which I'll link to in the show notes. But I am looking forward to at some point going back to Meet Samantha so I can try to make sense of why I identified with her. I do think I felt like a little bit of a Molly, though, because I also had bangs. I also had glasses. I was a little bit of a geek slash a lot of a geek. So I don't know, if nothing else, aesthetically, we had a lot in common. And that means something when you're seven. So I'm going to just accept that that's how I felt. But let's talk about the Route 66 adventure. It begins in 1946. It begins with a lovely inscription from Molly's older sister, Jill. And I have to say, I'm sort of embarrassed by this. It totally confused me. I opened the book. And again, I, I mentioned this. I had a used copy And maybe I was really tired. I don't know. But I opened it. I was like, oh, this is so nice. Like, I always love getting a used book when somebody has made notes in it. And like, I always love a notation in a book. And my husband was like, "Um, isn't that a scrapbook? And I was like, yes. He was like, I think maybe it's part of the book. So yeah, I mean, things got off to a really strong start reading this book. But it fooled me. And I think that means something. Speaking of being fooled, I don't want to, you know, be too controversial so early in this podcast, but I do believe, like, not to float a conspiracy theory, I do not believe Jill wrote this inscription. Oh, tell me more. In the fullness of time and in the presence of these witnesses, I don't believe that Jill, the character we were introduced to across the Molly books, is a nurturing older sibling in the vein of buying an unsolicited gift for a younger sibling who gets to go on a fun trip that she does not get to go on. I'm just saying, I think Molly practiced her cursive or asked a friend Maybe Allison, other Allison, sorry, Allison. Um, we have a lot of Allisons lot in the of Allisons. right now. I too am an Allison, technically. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you use two L's or one L? I feel a deep kinship with the Allison that is currently on this call because we spell our names the same way. I don't want to make you feel left out, Mary, but anyway, go back to the other Allison. I don't want I don't, I really don't want to exclude you from this conversation. No, that's okay. She's a one L, so that's <laughs> controversial. Mary, couldn't agree more. Thank you. Couldn't agree more. I don't want to go right to Area 51 because I don't, you yep. know. So during the past administration, a lot was revealed about unidentified foreign objects and United States military complicity with secret keeping. I don't want to go there because it's a Wednesday, but. The assassination. I read this note from Jill and I say no. And I say no because nothing about this makes sense. And also, it's very rude to write something on the first page of a scrapbook. Mom did this. 
If you don't think mom did this, this is a mom move. Here's the other thing too. I think mom is trying to insert some kind of, you know, positive reinforcement by noting that Jill is volunteering and actually serving her community, which feels like Jill to rub that in everyone's face. The reality here is we have a backseat issue. We have three children. We have one vehicle. Once again, Brad is erased. I wish we left Brad at home. Brad is totally forgotten in the books and in the film. We we can't even go there. It's too traumatizing. But love Jill? No, this is not love Jill. Well, and as an oldest sibling in a big family, I agree with you that like this is so generous. Even a very nice, generous person would struggle to like pick up this kind of a gift, write the note. There's no way she's not at least a little bit resentful, especially given this new issue that you've introduced, which is the backseat space problem. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah, it's it's a huge issue. Also, we have to remember that Molly is the mom's favorite and it's it's impossible to dispute this fact. So I think truly the way she's dealing with the backseat issue is by saying I'm going to buy my favorite something that will occupy her time. Now, does this activity book include math, which I would call like forced fun in a summer vacation situation? Like I wouldn't be happy with this, but you know, I do think she's really trying to stage a game plan here to benefit Molly ahead of time. And we don't really see that the boys are getting anything. I'm not saying I have a problem with that, but I'm just saying something's going on. It tells a story. We should note that the author of the other Molly books was not involved with this book. And I do think it shows in some ways. And this is something increasingly that American Girl did. It's something we observed with the Samantha books, which are early. But a lot of the supplemental pieces are written by different authors or kind of stitched together. And I was really struck by how much this seemed like a generic American Girl experience versus a Molly experience because there aren't a lot of throwbacks or many connections to things that happened in other books. Like almost on page one, we learn that there's a question of whether this trip is necessary, which it's not, but it's to make you think about war rations. There's so many ways that they could clue us in that this is the same Molly. And I think they kind of choose not to, to reach a wider audience. And because this is someone who pretty much only writes supplementals. So the author of Kaya's World is the person who did this book. And this is very much what she does. She kind of does the very random things, including also the Girls Stay at Home Alone guide, which I was like, IRL, I need that. Yeah, we all need that. Is that still available? Is it in the public domain? Can we just have it? It's not public domain. I think we should all pay for it to kind of support like women supporting women. Sure. It was like, do you, when you're home alone, do you hear a noise that scares you? I was like, yes. I started doing the quiz. (laughs) Check, check, check. Yes. Yeah, I'm ready for that. I mean, in light of the Olivia Rodrigo album coming out last week and, you know, like me feeling that, even though I believe it's meant for teens, I don't know how old I am anymore. I don't know what kind of life support, life advice I need at this stage of the game. Like, yeah, that that reached me. And yet we still have our side parts and that's okay. Both things can be true. Can I just say from the jump, this is my nightmare trip. Like, would either of you want to go on this vacation? No. I have been on this vacation. Oh my God. Like, but how far, how many days were you in the car? So I looked and it does take three weeks to do the entirety of this journey. And there are ways in which it would have to be different today because of changes to roadways and whatnot. But I have done portions of Route 66 and I have gone on very... This was like my parents' exact thing that they loved. And so we absolutely would have done this. And to the point of one sibling just making something up to stay home, 100% that would be my brother. So this tracks for my family because I'm one of three. But what shocks me is Molly is forced to sit in the middle. In my family, it was youngest and I was smallest by default but the fact that she's in the middle and brad gets a a window seat was a shock but yes I, i would do this happily you would do it again having already done parts of it i would i would so i was actually reviewing like the different stops and i have actually been to specific places mentioned in this book i've been to the states that are mentioned in this book i have my photo from when i decided 66 was my lucky number my family in illinois took me to illinois so i could stand in front of the sign not the only reason but yeah no i would totally i was thinking i was like i would vibe on this today 
I would keep all the stuff to make this kind of scrapbook and then put it in a plastic bag and never look at it again, which is what I did. Which is what happens with scrapbooks, which is what I've learned as I've gotten older. Um, I mean, I don't think this is a trip that would interest me. The idea of being in a backseat with three people makes my claustrophobic head hurt. And that's having not gone anywhere in over a year. So I don't even want it that badly. That would not be something that would excite me having not gone anywhere in over a year. So that's that's where I am with it. Listeners, for context, again, they are driving from Illinois, Jefferson, Illinois, which is Molly's hometown, to California on the famous Route 66. And my favorite moment of the first page is when the dad is like, we'll see the USA the American way along Route 66, which is like, tell me you're a dad without telling me you're a dad. That's the most dad thing that anybody has ever said. He is dadding so hard in that moment. And then something that sort of struck me as I was finishing the book was that I don't really understand like what the plan was when they got there, which I guess is sort of the point. But as I closed the book, I was like, okay, so they... They got there, they went to the pier, but why did they do it? And I guess that's that's like what Route 66 was. It was a time, especially in 1946, the war is over. There's this increased sense of freedom and people are taking the drive. But I really was like struck by the fact that I didn't really understand why they made that very long drive as a family of, of five, missing one family member that normally would have brought them up to six people. I think this author read on the road as a younger person and was like, what if there was no drugs? She just wrote that down on a little post-it. She was she like, just took some Sudafed. She's like, I'll go halfway there. <laughs> she was like, I'm going to circle back to that. Like, what if it was like that, but a little bit less racist, not totally anti-racist, but a little bit less racist. And what if there were kind of jokes about cowboys and Indians and the protagonist was a nine or 10 year old girl versus a man struggling to find himself? I think the dad is in crisis and there's no evidence for this in the book other than just the reality that I think part of what this book is picking up on and would be kind of appealing to to the, the parents, caretakers or grandparents who might buy this is like when the war ended, that desire to have relief and that desire to do something, to see something. And because the dad volunteered, I think maybe it's part of like, I want to see this thing I fought for. And none of that is truly in the book, but I've projected all of that onto Mr. M. You know, and I think that's beautiful. I'm wondering, picking up your on the road reference, if the dad kind of had his own Jack Kerouac journey, but more in a Buddhist vein and was sort of like, I want to teach my kids that the journey is the destination, which is something I would have zero patience for as a nine-year-old and like probably still now. Like if you get to Santa Monica and then it's like get every mile on a car trip with my family that we would drive somewhere, I would already be thinking, now we have to drive that mile back. And I'm in the backseat of a Buick station wagon with vinyl seats. I also have two brothers. One of them is named Ricky. Like, this was my experience. So to me, I'm like, this is triggering and deeply not worth it, even if you have air conditioning in your car. Yeah, I mean, you are you really are Molly. I have Thank to say you. that. The more I learn about you in this conversation, you really are Molly. I understand the connection. So yeah, I, I just, I feel, I have a lot of feelings about the trip itself. I think the dad... I think your point, Allison, about the dad is is an interesting one, especially his enthusiasm about seeing the USA the American way. I'm like, is that it? That's all we have to say about this massive journey that really has no end. Like, we don't, there's no plan once we get there. We're just going to get in the car and go. The other important thing that I want to mention that happens in the first, like, spread of the scrapbook is that Molly tells us about the Royal Oil Contest, um, which is sort of a through line throughout the book that kind of, like, ties this sort of arbitrary feeling to me journey together because otherwise you literally just have a scrapbook with like a bunch of pictures on it and it's completely disconnected from itself. So the Royal Oil Contest is basically like, I guess it's a gas company, a gas station, and they put this thing together where at any Royal Oil stop, you can pick up a clue. And it reminds me very much of something from like that movie that I hate, the Holly movie, A Christmas Story, where he's like doing the little orphan Annie decoder. She has a decoder and she has to decode the messages. Fun fact, one of the things that was missing from my book, the decoder. So I missed that whole part of the experience. I assume that you both had a decoder in your book and I'm super happy for you that you did. Oh yeah, that looks really fun. (laughs) I see. I straight up refuse. Like the way Mary has rejected this journey, 
I took one look at this and I was like, I'm absolutely not participating. Like you want to stress me out if a menu has a set of challenges, unless you know that we're going to have time to complete them all and or you will let me cheat. Don't start with me. Like even if it's a place that has four challenges, like if I know the food is coming because then I'll want to finish it. I feel like this was the world's most elaborate metaphor for Molly's coming out when she goes to college. Yeah. And let me just like take us on a journey with that real quick, like for the times that we're in. So like, let's say this gas station is throwing out the decoder ring game. Also in the late 40s, early 50s, other decoder games given to children also from gas stations and other places were to spot communists or as part of the early Cold War. And, you know, guess who were really vulnerable to being corrupted and made communist by the Soviet Union? That's right. It's the gays because, you know, you could be blackmailed. And if you were scared, you might be willing to, I don't know, if you worked for the federal government, you know, trade some secrets. God only knows what was going on. So like Molly's already like taking part in a surveillance state that might like be used against her in less than a decade. So there's a lot happening in this book. Like, I'm sure this is all in the author's mind. I haven't had a chance to speak to her, but I'm just going to like suppose that that's part of this. Well, it's the way it's introduced as well that she's going to win a signed photograph of Judy Garland. And then it says Dorothy. And it's like friend of Dorothy. We get it. We get it. And I need to speak on this for a second, Allison. Allison, that I knew before today. I'm happy I now know both of you. But Thank you. Other Allison, Allison with a roommate named Molly, um, and I were talking last night, and she so she knows this already, but I went down a very deep rabbit hole about Hollywood history, which is like a sub-interest of mine, because something I was curious about was if in 1946, Judy Garland would make sense as the natural prize for a contest like this, like getting her autograph being like the best get that this gas company could get. And if you look up a, a bunch of contests, which I did at all hours last night because I got in way too deep on this, um, about the top films of 1946 and actors who won popular polls of like best star, biggest star for men and women, Judy Garland is like not even in the top 10. Really? Not even in the top 10. The number one star in 1946 was Bing Crosby for um, The Bells of St. Mary's came out that year. Judy Garland did put out a movie in 1946 called The Harvey Girls, which popularized a song. What is it? Topeka and the Santa Fe. The, whatever that song is, a different song about a different roadway. But that was not a huge hit. So Betty Grable was considered the top star, female star of 1946. There's many other female stars that are in much bigger movies that year. Hold on, I do have a list that I opened up to share with you guys. I have way too many tabs. Because this was just sort of like curious to me, like how else would you justify the selection of this person other than you think nine-year-olds in whatever year this book came out would know who Judy Garland was and don't know who Betty Grable is, which is a crime, but that's a different story. But there was a movie called The Best Years of Our Lives. That was the number one movie in 1946. Also, a bunch of other movies probably no one else has heard of now, but The Yearling, which they referenced, was the ninth most popular movie that year. But Judy, so Judy Garland is like a real choice here. And I have to think it's because one, kids would know who she is, but also because I do think there is like a queer reading that's possible here. It is also smart narratively because we end up in California. And as you said, the parents have put very little forethought into the return journey. It's all I could think about as well that I was kind of worried for them. And it does provide a beautiful narrative moment where Molly says, you know, there's no place like home, right? And there is this kind of larger cultural piece that there's a few different master sort of themes happening throughout this book, the great American road trip, the notion of the Midwest as like real America, right? So much of this book is kind of like, this is what real Americans do, right? Mm. White people in cars who are free to travel, who have the money and the leisure to enjoy their time after the war. And it being a product of 2002, I feel like all we do is talk about 2002 now because we're reading the Kaya books from that year and Jen and Ben are back together. We're first name. So honestly, it's yeah. like all I think right. about. I only have about 100 images saved in my favorites folder. And one is uh, Ben Affleck carrying packages and an iced coffee. It just makes it's a metaphor. It just makes me smile. You look concerned. Oh, I know exactly the photo you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I once sent it to Mary and I said, your culture is not our costume, which is 
<laughs> or sorry, so our true. culture is not your costume. Right. That's right. Um, yeah. Because if you've ever seen me walk in and out of work, which you have not, but Mary has, I'm a complete disaster on the daily. Like my clothes are falling over, like I'm falling over and I'm always balancing an iced coffee like sloppily on other things regardless. It's a shared trait. So we both, <laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah, but it is. it's true. But there's something like really interesting to me. I was thinking about Lovecraft Country, which I watched a few months back, and the obvious contrast between Molly's family goes everywhere and feels welcome, right? And feels like this is something integral to their post-war experience. And I found an article that said, you know, Route 66 is a mirror of the country of its time, um, starting in the 20s and particularly in the post-war period, where a lot of people had fear while traveling. Like Molly is worried about not having enough water. She's worried about gas. She's worried about the desert part. But the fears that Black travelers would have had about not being welcomed or, you know, driving for hundreds of miles to a segregated space. And this book does feel very much kind of like a throwback in some ways to the early 90s nostalgia history books. Like, nope, this is what people did. This was the post-war experience when almost no one was doing this. It was a very small, very privileged subset that could. And and the dad in crisis, obviously. Big time crisis. Yeah, it feels very disconnected from anything realistic. And um, I was editing an episode that's coming out next week. So it's like me from the future of the past. I'm not quite sure. But the episode about Sarah Plain and Tall, which many of you hopefully will have listened to by this point, we talk a lot in that episode about, about how shorter books written for children especially can have sort of the luxury of like, historical revisionism and erasure because it's like, oh, it's so short. We don't need to ground it in any sort of real historical context. I mean, beyond the fact that this is a scrapbook and so it sort of requires some hard dates, there's not really any specific references to the time in which Molly is living. If you came to this book having not read the rest of the Molly books without any sort of grounding in the American Girls series and the brand and the premise, this sort of could feel like it comes from just like a generally simpler time um, and this sort of like, I think, dangerous American nostalgia that, to your point, disregards a lot of heavy, hurtful stuff that was going on. And in the conversation about Sarah Plain and Tall, I brought up these arguments that I had found online written by people who were basically like, Sarah Plain and Tall is so lovely because it doesn't feel like it exists in any specific time and place. And that's because Sarah Plain and Tall was written about the like Midwestern frontier in the late 19th century. Um, and so it's like really convenient for white people that it doesn't need to be grounded in any specific time, place, or history because that was a really awful time in American history. And so this conversation just kind of makes me think about that because if you were really to go into like the realities of this time – the scrapbook would have to be much longer with a lot of annotations and like footnotes and probably some like not so great memories for Molly, even if she's not experiencing bad things personally, like you would think she would have some other kinds of like layered observations about what's going on. Mm. Well, I think Sarah Plain et al. too is an interesting example of how you can think with history. So I mean, obviously, to the presentation of that book is that the people, the white people there in the Midwest are settling a what to them was an empty land. And that's the right. challenge of their lives. And obviously, we know that's a fantasy. However, I do think it presents if you're asking questions about the history of the family, I do think it has some interesting comparative points. This is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. But if you put that in conversation with something like 90 Day Fiance, I mean, we still do have these ready made or like capitalist consumer driven, you know, ready made family mechanisms or businesses. And of course, that's how she's connected right with her soon to be husband or new family. So I mean, I I'm not willing to throw Sarah Plain at all out myself only because I enjoyed it reading growing up. I've not read it in years. Although I also believe I I'm still stand it because of Glenn Close. And I won't apologize for that. I mean, she still has not won her Academy Award someday, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, for sure, like the fantasy of the Midwest in that book is is crazy. But like, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, David McCullough's book on the pioneers features literally an empty wilderness. And that book just came out two years ago. So white people in particular, are very romanticized or seduced by this narrative about them as conquerors or that somehow their own genius relies on an empty land that they've made their own. 
And, you know, I think that it's still seductive today. And I don't know that we're necessarily getting away from it as quickly as we should. Yeah. This feels like a good time to talk about some of the specific language that Molly uses about cowboys and Indians and about some of the interactions that she has with Indigenous folks on their journey. So I'll throw out one that I thought was especially head-scratching, I guess is the word that I'll use. And then, of course, I would love to hear about moments that you felt were complex, which I think many of them were. At one point, the family goes to some sort of a festival. Um, Let me see if I can find the name of it in my notes. But even the language around like stumbling onto this festival was off-putting because it was like, oh, we were just there. And so we decided to go. We figured we'd just show up. Um, And I think that sort of speaks to what we were talking about before. We're like, must be great to be a white person who can just do that. (laughs) Like, hi, we're here. And Molly has a conversation with a girl who is about her age. And she writes in her scrapbook, I made friends with a Navajo girl. She was dressed just like the girl in my Klein's Corners brochure. When I told her I wished I could dress like that every day, she laughed. She said she was just dressed up for the festival. On regular days, she dresses like I do. Jeepers, did I feel dumb. Jeepers, did I feel dumb is my favorite quote from the entire book. Should we make shirts? I think so, yeah. Jeepers, yeah. Jeepers is a lifestyle, yeah. She does interact a lot with indigenous people and she does interact with different spaces and there's actually a part where she's talking about texas and she says but i call it empty right it has this other name but i call it empty and i think there is something that's kind of internalized colonial stuff happening but there is something to driving you know if you're from a a dense or urban area and there are portions of this country that are not empty but they are wide open Right. And so if you come from a place with a lot of mountains or oceans and then you drive through a place like New Mexico, I think it is a transformative experience. You know, she's from Illinois, so she's used to one kind of landscape. And I think something that's kind of important about this book is Molly is making mistakes and Molly is learning from people in real time. Molly doesn't have Wikipedia Molly doesn't really have a great education, we've learned, because she's kind of patching she together basic too much time crushing on her teacher. <laughs> her teacher. Yeah. She's learning basic math in the backseat that we kind of should have already covered through Ranger arithmetic. But there is something kind of profound about the way Molly is trying to take in the world and making mistakes. And I think where people sometimes have interesting feedback for us, we understand that she's 10, but we also understand that some people kind of choose to continue to fall through life that way. You know, that, you know, other people are not on this planet to educate you at your convenience. And I don't, I, I want to hope that Molly grows from this and Molly is part of Freedom Summer because she learns that she has really good bladder control. I don't know. Like, I want to believe that about her, that this sure. changes her, because I think there is something special to the fact that I, I went on a very similar trip when I was very close to her age and I was very privileged and lucky to do that. And we were traveling with someone who actually did pose with indigenous people at basically this exact same location because I looked it up. And I remember as a child being mortified that this happened, that this felt totally inappropriate and have since been to other places where, you know, to the page that features Oklahoma, Molly sees a totem pole. I've also been fortunate enough to be to a place where the public was invited in to learn what a totem pole actually is and to stop saying expressions that don't have anything to do with totem poles. Like, I think the world has changed since then, but Molly's encountering this really weird moment in American culture where there is more access for some people. They finally have gas if they can afford it. And this kind of world has opened up to her family and she's kind of fumbling through it. But I think we would hope as women over 30 that maybe like we, we would do differently, right? Or an adult would do differently. I think the thing I was hoping for in that moment that you guys described where she says jeepers, did I feel dumb or whatever that was, was, you know, of course, a 10 year old is not necessarily responsible for their behavior in the same way we would hold an adult responsible. But an adult wrote this book. And I'm kind of the thing I wish that the author had done was to sort of model what you do when you inadvertently offend someone. So if you walk into a moment, you're a person of privilege, you're a white girl 
And she makes this assumption that this girl wears her traditional outfit all the time, is quickly disabused of that. How do you respond in that moment? Do you just say, I'm really sorry and mean it sincerely and then just keep going so you don't make that person take care of you in that moment or educate you? That would have been a really, I think, helpful thing to put into this book for nine-year-olds reading this book because, you know, I'm sure a lot of the nine-year-olds reading this are more like Molly than not in some ways. I mean, most people, most children especially, don't travel too far from where they're raised before they're maybe college days, you know, friends, whatever your circumstances are. So maybe you're not exposed to people who are different from you in the same way that others are. So to have instructions about how you handle those definitely going to happen to you in your life moments, I think would have been really helpful. Yeah. I mean, Jeepers, I feel dumb is not that far off from the internal dialogue that I experienced when I weighed in to territory that I was not prepared to wade into or when I use a word in an incorrect or inappropriate way. When I'm trying my best to be anti-racist and to be in the world behaving in the way that I want to behave based on the books that I read and the way that I talk on my podcast and don't quite get it right. So Jeepers, I feel dumb. I totally get. And I think I think there were a few moments in the book where I actually really appreciated Molly's openness. I mean, she doesn't get it right all the time. And um, of course, there are moments that feel highly inappropriate, highly appropriative in this book, highly disrespectful. But there were a couple of moments where I I really just like appreciated that she seemed to be on the verge of understanding that there was a lot that she didn't understand. You mentioned the totem pole a few minutes ago, and they they find their way to this sort of like totem pole attraction. Like they're building these fake, I think, plastic or like fiberglass totem poles. And Molly does have a moment where she's like, I don't think that's what they look like. And as silly as it sounds, and as like, it's still quite superficial, that observation, like there's a lot that she clearly needs to learn and able to identify like what that tradition actually does mean. I started that moment because I was like, okay, she's noticing something that maybe even the adults that she's with aren't noticing. Like her family seems to be like super psyched to probably like pose with these fake totem poles and to talk about how cool it is. And Molly, at least, is taking a moment and being like, I'm pretty sure this is wrong and not at all historically accurate. And while she can't necessarily put words to the fact that it's like disrespectful, inappropriate, appropriative, like, I don't know, that got me thinking about her. And the fact that she does at least seem to be open to the things around her, the things that she's observing, not necessarily being right all the time. She does also have this interesting moment of awareness as you're saying when they're in new mexico and they visit a pueblo yeah and she goes to sky city and she writes on a side note mom was strict with us at the pueblo she said no running around this is their home and you can almost feel those wheels turning of kind of like well why is their home open to the public when you know what goes on in her house is private Right, because that's part of the the privilege and the world that they inhabit. And I think part of what this and for a lot of people on the road does not hold up for many reasons, right? Because there are moments of pretty intense racism that come out, but they actually share something very similar. So Molly would be 12 years or so younger than Jack Kerouac, but they're sharing this thing, which is that for some people you can visit in other people's cultures. And because kind of like the state is on your side, you're allowed to when the reverse would not happen, right? Like Molly is able to do this and also has this kind of freedom to travel because out of necessity, these people have opened their homes to strangers in part to make a living. And I do think there are a few moments where Molly is kind of like, this isn't what I thought based on the movies. But you're right, it's very astute that she realizes that this also kind of seems fake and She's very into Hollywood by this point. We know that Molly loves the movies from her books, but you can imagine, I don't, I'm, I'm putting this on Ricky. He makes her watch John Wayne movies. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. I think we could probably blame Ricky for most things. I mean, I didn't even blame Molly for attempting to kill him at the Grand Canyon and, and then cover it up with a story about like an alleged slip off his mule. Like, I think we all know what really happened there. It was the mule's fault. He almost fell off of the mule. I didn't push him, I promise. Is mule a new nickname for Molly at this point in the trip? Is that what we're supposed to 
If I may, it is also a psychological phenomenon that you want to push people when you're at canyons. No, I'm serious. And I'll tell you, someone was like, no, this is real. You can look it up. Something happens to you where someone was slightly disrespectful to me at Bryce Canyon. I shouldn't name it, whatever. It was Bryce Canyon. And I was like, one push, (gasps) one push. Because something happens to you when you're that close to I'm a park ranger. Like I should not be saying this, but something, something does happen to you. The way that you interact with people does change. And all these different things are occurring at the same time, right? Like you are in front of something majestic. You're in front of something surreal. You're also like, if you're with Molly, we learn early on that she's a sloppy eater. So like there's probably mustard on her fingers, right? I, I think something that makes road trips interesting is it's the mundane constantly colliding with the amazing, right? You're at this place and like you also see out of the corner of your eye the line growing for the ladies restroom. And you're like, even here, I'm not safe. Even here, Ricky is a terror. But something happens when you're very close and you can read books like Death at the Grand Canyon. There are people who kind of it's like one little thing pushes them and they physically push people off the edge. It happens not infrequently. I wasn't actually going to do this, but I felt a flash through me of like, yeah, push me. I push you. I don't know if you need to edit that out. If this is Mary, have you been? No, it but happens. I'm just like, okay, so Allison and I are going on a trip in like a week and a half. And now <laughs> I'm like, away from oh my canyons. God, we're going to stay away from canyons. Honestly, you kind of have to. Like this, you know, similar things happen on mountains. Like watch Dateline. I'm not saying this is like 100% Allison science, but there are things that happen to you. And I felt this very strong compulsion one time when I was at Capitol Reef, which is a, a similar kind of place out in this, this four-state area. And I literally Googled it in the car. Like, why do I feel this way? But you know, Molly couldn't do that. Well, I think the book kind of foreshadows this murderous moment because we read that she's amazed in Missouri by Bella Starr, who is a historic figure. um, Mm -hmm. A, I don't know how he would describe her, but she was murdered in a very gruesome way and it's still unsolved, but she was like a robber. She was, you know, like this very, I guess, romanticized figure by now. And it's sort of an interesting juxtaposition at first for me because one of the first places they go is Lincoln's home. And she could care less about Abraham Lincoln. She goes to his grave. She goes to his house. She really doesn't care at all about Abraham Lincoln, which is a moment of privilege, but also I think kind of a fun, like rebellious kid moment of like, I don't care about this thing that my parents think I should care about. But then when she, it's like this Bella Star reference feels from nowhere to me. I don't know how you guys read it, but it only makes sense later when you get to the Grand Canyon and you realize, oh, she was inspired by Bella. She likes that. On the next page, we have a reference to a rainbow, which she's very excited about. She loves the majorette. There's just like certain things that she loves on this experience that I think she has to think about later. The last page is literally a full a full page photo of Judy Garland. Writings on the which I'm going to post on the SSR Instagram story because it is very, it's quite glamorous. And Judy Garland was quite beautiful. But just to your point, just continuing the thread there. I also think it's interesting just like, and who know? I don't know how these choices are made in terms of like how much say the author has in like defining exactly what the plot line is going to be for a book like this within the American Girl universe. It's interesting that like they did not dive that deeply into something like Abraham Lincoln's home, it almost seems like they selected parts of American history or like landmarks in the US that maybe young readers like are less familiar with that maybe speak to like what would actually appeal to a kid who's on a road trip. Like I remember being a kid and like there was truly nothing worse than being dragged through a historical site or a museum, which is why unfortunately I still struggle in museums because I hated it so much as a kid. And I had a grandmother who was just so obsessed <laughs> with museums and would make me, she would sit there, stand there and watch me read every placard. And we could not leave until we had like left no placard unturned. And I promise that it's not that I lack appreciation for museums. It's a me thing, I assure you. But I do sort of like the fact that like a young reader who's coming to this book is maybe learning sort of lesser known parts of American history and also maybe feeling a little bit more seen in terms of like not necessarily wanting to be quite so immersed in certain 
landmarks. I mean, I agree with you. There's obviously a hint of privilege there, not even a hint, like a heavy dose of privilege with Molly not really needing to celebrate Abe Lincoln's home. But I did think it was kind of interesting. Like we're, we are, it, it felt very true to the way a young girl would like experience a trip like this and like the things that she would save and the things that she would make notes about, like an adult wouldn't care about a lot of this stuff. No. And to be fair to her, the big kind of boom and proliferation of historic sites hasn't really happened yet. Like, yeah. Of course, the history has happened. But when the bicentennial happens and Molly's having a crisis with her first husband in <laughs> 1975, 1976, mm-hmm. like she's starting to ask questions and she's visiting the colonial sites with him. She still has that Judy Garland photo. That's really when there's a massive boom. And it's as this road trip is actually happening that there is a gradual buildup and appreciation that there should be more sites within the National Park Service and you know, within different entities that are supported, not just to preserve history, but to present it to the public. And it's really not until the 1960s that even within the Park Service, there's an orientation towards saying, we should be preserving these historic sites because they're as important as the Grand Canyon, or they represent something as valuable. So that really is kind of a cool thing too, that in her time, there's kind of a greatest hits. Like she can go see Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure that tour was terrible. And then she learns about Teddy Roosevelt and she's a little bit more vibing with Teddy Roosevelt, but the history she would have been taught at this point too, was written pretty much by like nine white people in a trench coat, as Mary would say, and probably not very compelling. Like we really were so lucky that history was made more for us, right? By the time we came along or the place where I work, social historians demanded that it be a certain way and be about ordinary people. I think by the time the 80s came around, Molly's not here for that because she's, it's the stocks. It's it's complicated with Carl. (laughs) (laughs) I just kept thinking like if this book waited 10 years, Molly would be like, yeah, I'd rather go to the mall. Like basically, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like that it would be different for her. She'd be on a different path. Well, the tagline is hop in the backseat with Molly. And I was kind of like, no thanks, because Molly's coming of age in a very different courting culture. And I was like, I don't know about that. (laughs) Well, they go to a drive-in and I was like, yeah, there's a lot here. Like Molly might return to a drive-in someday. Like, and I was envisioning like that scene from Pleasantville where like it's somewhat fraught, but for Molly would be even more fraught until she like stumbles into a consciousness raising group in the early seventies and starts to like turn the mirror inside and ask some hard questions. Yeah, I think about Greece. That's yes. my like icky drive-in association, which is also quite problematic. Yes. We're coming at this also. We both literally just finished reading this week this fantastic YA novel called Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which is set almost exactly in this same exact time frame and yet is worlds away. It's this brilliant novel. Really and it combines all these different threads like lavender fear and persecution with communism and immigration. So it is kind of hard. This book is like Boulder Dam. You know, (laughs) we really should not compare these two things. But if you are an adult listening to this and you want to inhabit basically the same exact world, but from a very different place. So that book is 400 pages. This is about 25. I don't know how you spend your time, but Both are worthwhile. Yes. Yes, In different ways. So often at the end of my episodes, we will sort of have a moment where we compare the experience of reading the book that's been featured as an adult with the memories that we have of it from our childhood or our teen years. And of course, this is a little bit different because none of us read this book as kids. So I guess I, I would sort of twist that question a bit for you both and ask, being that you hadn't read this book before, but you have such a deep knowledge and love for Molly. I guess I'm wondering, did this scrapbook format work for you? Did it meet any expectations that you might have had of this format? Did you enjoy it sort of as part of the broader American Girl universe, given the fact that you are so invested in it? I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I was vibing on it pretty hard. I've probably read it six times now because there really is not a lot of words. And I appreciate this kind of thing because I really get a lot of pleasure out of reading fast. That is something that I really enjoy. The idea of waking up and reading a novel before the afternoon is joy to me. And I like to really sit and concentrate and do it. 
And with this, the first time I went through, I didn't play with any of the stuff. I just powered through the words, which I'm an adult. There's probably only a thousand words in this book, so it wasn't hard. But I then went back and really took my time with the stuff and like playing with the accessories and the mask. I'm not trying to rub it in. Rub it in. I know. I'm sorry. I know. I'm the only one who got to like play with it. But I appreciate things that make me slow down and trying to read things like graphic novels are really hard for me for that reason. And I like that this kind of pushed me to read differently. I'm Allison's opposite. I love graphic novels. And for I really loved reading this too, but probably because I like to read non-traditional book formats. So I love graphic novels. I love reading scrapbooks. There's a really wonderful book called Writing with Scissors that's actually a history of the late 19th, early 20th century and focuses on the abolition movement and the suffrage movement and the scrapbooks that were left behind by activists um, across movements. And basically the argument of the book is if you don't have time and why I'll save you 300 pages, is that these people who compiled the scrapbooks were writing by cutting. So like they basically constructed their own history by cutting different news stories and photos and putting them together and forming a narrative that was brand new or unique, at least to this book. And that's kind of what I was thinking about reading this, that Molly was sort of writing her own story of this trip. And anyway, I just love things like this. I read stuff like this for fun all the time. So I really liked it. That's how I felt about it. It was just refreshing to have this different format to have things to look at and to touch, although there are a lot of things that I did not get to enjoy, thanks to whoever owned this book before, who was not Jill writing this inscription in the front of the book, of course, contrary to my initial belief. But I I really enjoyed it. It brought me back to this like really kind of lovely place of being a kid and stumbling on a book like this in a bookstore and immediately opening it and sitting on the floor of the bookstore and just wanting to get my hands on it and in it and explore. And I do think that that's such a rare treat as an adult, especially as an adult who I just feel like there's so many things calling for my attention in like the reading world, whether it's reading for the podcast, reading for grad school, trying to read for fun. It just felt really good to like be back in that headspace with a book. And so I really appreciate you both for choosing it for this episode. And I know you've mentioned some great books that I will include links to in the show notes for this episode, but are there any other books that you've read lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I want to get the title of it because I just was talking about graphic novels, but I just read Alison Bechdel's latest book, which actually references Jack Kerouac quite a bit. So I was thinking about it when Alison was speaking about it. It's called, Alison, do you want to jump in while I'm like finding this? Certainly. So I completely, I had never heard of her. I picked up No One Is Talking About This. And I know Mary loves Patricia Lockwood. That name did not ring any bell with me. I pushed myself at my local library to just randomly pick up books. And half the time, honestly, I just stopped reading them 10 pages in. But I like think I'm doing something. And I picked this book up and it's one of the strangest and most insightful things I've ever read. And it really played with my mind. And there were sentences that I did not understand. And then on the next page, sentences that I feel like I've thought exactly. And I I think that's a cool experience. I'll also say relative to our conversation, I read per our listener's recommendation, Prairie Lotus by Linda Sue Park. And just absolutely could not have loved that book more. And it made me think a lot about conversations we have with listeners about stories set in the Midwest or stories set in like a pioneer time. And I know you've covered Kirsten. And I think if someone said to me, no context, should I should I start the Kirsten series or should I read something else? I would say read Prairie Lotus. No question. Just a wonderfully rendered book and just kind of also made me feel like there is always something new to say about a genre that you think is so done. I've heard great things about that book too. It is, it is fantastic and it's a beautiful read to sit with. And there's so many scenes that are just so textured and made me think for a long time. And it also pushed me because I loved the Little House on the Prairie TV show as a kid. And my hair is layered in a way that's kind of strange and Michael Landon-esque. And honestly, like I know that show is a problem and I know the source material is a problem. And reading a book about a wonderful young girl who runs her own family's fabric store, I was like, this is Nellie Redeemed. That's all I'll say. Wow. It's a great book. 
So I'll just say I want to also affirm Allison's Patricia Lockwood pick. Her novel is wonderful. She previously wrote a memoir called Priest Daddy, which is about her experience growing up with a father who converted to be a Catholic priest. I'll plug Priest Daddy too. I loved Priest Daddy. It's hilarious. Um, my cousin lent me her copy. I still have it. Got it right before the pandemic. I will return it someday. Those all sound like amazing recommendations. And I'm going to include links to all of them in the show notes for this episode, along with links to all things. American Girls podcast. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I can't imagine that there are many SSR listeners who are not aware of your show. But Allison, do you want to give a quick synopsis, quick summary so that anybody who is not already keyed into what you're doing can come on over and take a listen? Yes, please. So we are the American Girls podcast. We dive into the kind of wild world of American Girl fandom, and we go back through the different series book by book. We recently completed the first six historical characters that came out prior to the Mattel acquisition in 1997, and we are now going back in chronological order, starting with Kaya. So we are deep in another 2002 product with actually books by the same author. So join us over there and you'll have links to our socials. But we love when you send us those doll pictures and heck your Route 66 pictures too. Get your kicks on Route 66. Yes. Well, I'll say that unfortunately we lost Mary due to a power outage, but Allison, thanks so much to both of you for joining. This was so fun and I have a feeling that we have successfully pulled off this collab that our <laughs> listeners have been waiting for the ultimate collab as they've said I'm honored to even be included as part of that collab because I love what your podcast does and I just really appreciate your time and all of your thoughtful insights and this was tons of fun and I hope we get to do it again me too thank you bye SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media podcasts Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>